pathway comes, the, you feel the machinery start to wind up, even if you don't have school-aged children, because everyone is kind of getting back to normal, whatever normal means. And instead of putzing along maybe at 60 kilometers an hour, everyone's doing 110. And there are still people passing you. Because living life at that crazy, hectic rate. So I'm wondering, how do we stay sane in a crazy world? It's been said that good things come in small packages. And this psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 131, is uh, an example of that. Because, Sean, I'm going to need your help on this one doesn't seem to be working. Next slide. I'm so glad. I, I love creating a sense of suspense in a sermon. <laughs> Apparently, that's a way to, to uh, maintain your attention. Okay, we're getting there. Let me tell you a little bit about Psalm 131 while it, while it comes up on the screen. Psalm 131 is called a Psalm of Ascents and Ascent, like going up a hill. And it was uh, one of a number of worship psalms meant to be sung by pilgrims as they went to Jerusalem for one of the three annual priests, uh, feasts. And they would go there and sing, and it was that intent. And that's it. Three verses. And I'm thinking, hot dog, we've got a fighting chance of getting out here before 12 o'clock. Maybe not. We'll see. Because good things come in small packages. And I'm going to challenge us. I think you could, we could spend the rest of our lives trying to implement the principles, the truth of this psalm. I'm a little hesitant about analyzing poetry. And it's not because of my experience in public school analyzing poems and sonnets and, and so forth. But sometimes when you have something that's a beautiful piece of art, when you start taking it apart, it can kind of lose its beauty a little bit. But not so with this psalm. I'm going to ask you to do something with me. I'm going to ask all of us to stand up and we're going to read this psalm together. Okay? All right? Ready? One, two, three. Lord, my heart is not proud... My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Instead, I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child who no longer cries for its mother's milk. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord now and always. Thanks. Please be seated. As you can see, it's a fairly, it is quite brief, written by King David. And uh, he mentions, first of all, he starts off slightly uh, with a negative tone. He talks about things to avoid. He says, Lord, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. My heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. But David deliberately chooses to avoid pride in verse 1. Pride makes us restless and dissatisfied with what we have. 
it focuses our attention all about us, on our place in life, what we have, what we don't have. We often, when we're preoccupied with pride, we fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to other people. A person falls into pride when he or she overvalues themselves and undervalues others. And this is a picture of a person who's not found their rest in God. And they can't worship. They're just not able. We think lots about ourselves, and we think probably too highly of ourselves. Here's a a very helpful definition of pride I found while I was studying for this sermon. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon Him. So that's what pride is, when we want to be God. I've got good news for you. Good news for us this morning. God is God and you are not. Even better news, God is God and I am not. <laughs> you understand that? That's, that's the human preoccupation, though. We want to make life all about us, don't we? It's just that innate self-centered orneriness that the Bible calls sin. We want to make life all about us. Pride's all about self-glorification. Pride's about worship, but not the worship of God. It's as if we rewrite that little worship song, in my life, Rick, be glorified, be glorified. It's all about me. Whoops. That's a really bad typo. I'm hoping the lightning's not going to hit the stage because we've already had too many fires in this church. But that just, see, we want to make life all about us. And David chooses not to do this. Now, why did he write this? David had been accused in various times of his life of being proud and self-seeking. We see that right before he fights the giant Goliath. He's the youngest of a bunch of brothers, and if you've grown up with brothers or siblings, maybe you know what it's like to be the youngest in the family. And uh, he's out looking after the sheep, and he goes to check out his brothers who are lining up in battle. And potentially, someone's got to get go get this big giant, right? And he comes, and his big brother, I think deflecting his fear and anger, and p- starts picking on the little brother. He says, what are you here? you know good so-and-so. You know, you just come to watch the fight. You should be home looking after those few sheep of your fathers. You know, what are you doing here? He's, he's basically accusing uh, David of pride. And when David was serving King Saul, again, he was accused of being proud and ambitious. And all David was trying to do was he was trying to be a loyal servant. So he knew about the temptations of pride. But David had said to himself, my heart is not proud. I will not be a self-seeking person. I will not be that way. I will make a decision not to do that. And then he goes on to say, my eyes are not haughty. Someone who is haughty, you could almost see the inside of their nose lifted so high and looking down on other people. When I think of someone who's haughty, there's a slightly upper crust accent, and they look down at other people, right? David says, well, I'm not haughty. I don't look down on people. I don't despise other people. That's not me. 
Pride is a serious problem. And basically, I think you can, you can make a very good argument that the, the root of all of our sin, the root of all of uh, human misery is basically based on pride. It's the essence of all sin because it makes us number one. The next negative thing that David mentions, he says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I don't worry about things that are too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Some things are above my pay grade in life. Some things I just don't get. He, he understands his limits. He's not trying to play God. We try to play God. We try to explain things that happen, uh, rationalize things that happen. We try to take over from God because God needs a little help now and then, doesn't he? So we just take over for him. But there are some things that we just cannot understand. We cannot grasp because we don't have God's eternal perspective on things. We don't always know why things happen when they happen. We just do not. Let me read you a story from, I don't know if you're familiar with Corrie Ten Boom. She's the author of The Hiding Place. If you have not read that book, find it. We might have a copy of it here in the library. I don't know. Find it. It's a story of a young girl growing up in World War II in the Netherlands, and her father starts hiding Jews from the Nazis. And it tells about all their adventures and experiences and ordeals. It's a, it's a true story. It's a very powerful story. But um, Corey was uh, very fond of her dad. He was a widower, kind of an austere, very formal Dutch gentleman. And uh, she tells a story about she's a young girl, maybe about 10, traveling on the train from um, Harlem to Amsterdam in uh, Holland. And this is a conversation she has with her dad. As Corey was traveling with her father in the train, she had stumbled upon a poem that had the words sex sin among its lines. And so seated next to father in the train compartment, I suddenly asked father, what is sex sin? Maybe if you're a parent of young children, you've probably had that kind of situation before. He turned to look at me, as he always did when answering a question, but to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifting his traveling case from the rack over our heads and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? He said. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning for his business. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, and it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way. Corey, with some knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. And I was satisfied, more than satisfied, wonderfully at peace. There were answers to this and all my hard questions. For now, I was content to leave them in my father's keeping. Now, this story is not meant to keep us in an infantile state. It's not meant to keep us uninformed and ignorant and not develop our minds to think good thoughts about God. But there are some things that are just too heavy for us to carry, that we do not fully understand. And that's what David means 
when he says, I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for myself. I don't. There are some things I just have to give over to God, saying, God, I don't understand this. I don't get this. I will put this literally in your hands. You bear this. You carry this for me. Okay? Because David is choosing to submit to God. He's saying, God is God, and I am not. He's learned to begin seeking God's glory rather than his own, and then he's recognizing his own limits. And if you and I are going to have what David describes in this passage, we also need to root out the pride in our lives, examining our motives for why we do things, and to stop trying to handle the issues in our lives that are God-sized issues. We'll understand our limits, and we can turn to the God who is limitless. Think about that. If we look at things that are beyond our limits, we can turn them over to the God who is limitless. So maybe you have relationships or issues or situations in your life that you need to turn over to God. I'd encourage you to start doing that right now, even before the sermon ends, because God is going to be bringing things to mind that you need to lean, leave with Him and turn over to Him. What we've talked about what do I avoid in the positive sense, the psalm continues and says, okay then, what do I choose? David says, instead, uh, this is the stuff, I'm not proud and haughty, I don't concern myself with things that are too wonderful for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child who no longer cries for its mother's milk. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. David is making a choice. He says he's learning not to pursue his own glory. And he had to struggle with himself. If we don't take deliberate action, we will default to pride. And we'll attempt to carry those things that are too big for us. David has found a way to deal with his anxious heart and to calm himself down. Even when he's surrounded by situations that could easily overwhelm him. If you read about his, his life in the Old Testament, it was not easy or predictable, but he had learned to calm himself down and give himself the big picture. What's the main difference between a child who is weaned and one who's still either breastfeeding or bottle feeding? I used to think a, a baby feeding, whether on the bottle or the breast, was just a picture of contentment and relaxation. And I could never quite figure out what David was meant in this psalm. Then I realized uh, a nursing baby is always trying to get something. You know, it's good. It's natural connection and bonding. But they're looking for something, right? From mom, which is natural and good. But the difference is a weaned child is saying, I, I'm not in this relationship to get something. I just want to be with you. And child development experts will, will tell us that there's a really healthy attachment when a baby or a young child just looks at uh, a caregiver's face and bonds. And maybe you didn't have that. Um, it's still possible to develop that at an older state in life. There's just that, just that bonding and delight that's there. So when David talks about a weaned child, he's saying someone who's not struggling or fussing to try to get something 
out of the caregiver, but someone who is totally relaxed and at ease and just content to be, to be held. And that's the state that David has arrived at. Now, it's not easy. Weaning someone off something is not whether it's, whether it's feeding or weaning yourself off uh, a bad habit of smoking or going to the fridge too often or weaning yourself off whatever you need to be weaned off. It's not an easy process. It's a process. And as I was studying for this, uh, to prepare this sermon, I came across, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Charles Spurgeon. He was a very famous preacher in England in the 1800s. And some wise old preacher had told Spurgeon, you know what? I understand when I read Psalm 131, I'm supposed to act like a weaned child. But my problem is, and this is an old experienced pastor, he says, my problem is I act like a weaning child. I act like I'm still in the process because I fret, fret and I fuss and I want something from God and I demand and I ah, clench my fist and I act like I'm weaning instead of I should be weaned already. So this wise old pastor realized even at his state and in, in his advanced years that it's tempting, that it's, this is a process that we need to learn and develop. But it's really something to aim at because we ultimately we want to find our satisfaction in God and in our relationship with Him, not in trying to get something out of Him. If we're fussy and needy and fretful and we don't want to trust God with the big things in life, we want control. We want God to do our bidding. We're just not content to be just in His presence. But if we choose, if we choose through faith to say, Lord, I want to be content in Your presence, do you know what really helps? Start being thankful. Start keeping track of the things, big and little, that God has done for you. It gives you this perspective on life. And somehow your anxiety, your blood pressure goes down a little bit and your anxiety decreases and you realize, wow, God has answered prayer in the past. He could do it in the future. Maybe this problem that, he's, that I'm facing isn't overwhelming after all. This is very helpful in the middle of the night when you can't sleep, perhaps in, instead of counting sheep, start counting blessings instead. Not that it'll put you to sleep, but just help you relax and give you perspective. And I believe that if our hearts are full of thanksgiving and gratitude, it doesn't leave much room for anxiety and fretfulness and fear and bitterness and all the other stuff that creeps in and wants to steal our joy. So that's what David is trying to choose. He's trying to choose to be... To, to put his trust, to be content, just to know God and to be known by him and to delight in that relationship. And he leaves us with an invitation for all of us. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord now and always. When we cultivate lives that have found rest in God, we'll be able to invite other people into that rest. We'll have something, we'll have good news to share with other people, right? Something that we've experienced ourselves. And our very lives will be an invitation to others to experience the same kind of rest that we're experiencing ourselves. 
It's like David saying that out of his rest, out of his humble confidence in God, he's able to invite others to put their hope in God as well. You know, like I said, the, the psalm's only three verses long. So technically, it shouldn't be that hard to memorize or just to repeat to ourselves in the middle of the night, right? I'd really encourage you to, to copy it out, find a translation you like, copy it out, put it on your fridge, on your mirror when you get ready for the day, wherever you're going to likely see it, and start working on it and start integrating it into your life. I think that integrating this psalm into our lives will help us overcome our propensity to be concerned with our own glory, with our, our making life all about us, and also help us cope with all the challenges that we face in the world as well. And we won't be trying to carry issues that really belong to God. We can give them back to Him. We don't have anything to prove to God. Everybody take a deep breath. One, two, three. We don't have anything to prove to God. We don't have anything to prove. So we can come to Him with empty hands and because everything has been provided for us through Jesus to come into a relationship with Him. When you see what Jesus has accomplished in dying in our place, it takes the judgment that rightfully should have fallen on our heads, we'll be able to find our true rest in God and relax and say, okay, God, I'm going to put my hope in you. I don't know if you've got anything that you want to leave behind today or something that you want to pick up for the rest of the journey, but this would be a great opportunity for you to leave behind whatever you're carrying today, whatever burden you're carrying Maybe there's something that's just too big for you to handle. Join the club. Join the club. Everybody's got stuff. That's one of the first things I tell people who come into my office after I go over the three basic rules. There's no such thing as a dumb question. This office is like Vegas. It's confidential. And, you know, you're, there's nothing you're going to say that's going to shock me or make me judge you. Because God's the judge, not me. And then I tell people, everybody's got their stuff. I do, you do, we all have our stuff. But Psalm 131 says, we can find our hope in God and leave our stuff with Him. Wouldn't that be a wise choice today? Let's pray. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would help us to leave whatever stuff whatever burdens we're carrying, here with you today. There's so many things that overwhelm us in life. And we want to find our peace in you. Help us to be like a weaned child who just wants to snuggle in for a hug without trying to get anything out of the caregiver. That's the picture we want to keep in our minds. Show us how to do this. Show us how to put our trust in you. And I pray your spirit would affirm this. We pray these things confidently in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Chris and Ken are going to come and lead us in the closing song. And then at the end of the service, as a benediction, 
We're going to stand and read that song together again.